this coming to the end of the year. We spent a lot actually on our retrofit as well as, as, as the renovations. It was a humongous project. But I would like you to consider the church as the, as the storehouse where you can give your tithes to as well. I know that we all have many d- demands from all over the place, all over the world, I suppose. But may I make a plug for BCF? All right, I will leave it to you. Okay. I'd like to continue talking about what we were talking about last week. And if you can turn with me to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. We will look at this. The work that God does in reducing us. We saw how um, God said to Gideon and the nation of Israel that I were being swarmed by the Midianites. The scriptures tell us that they would come overnight and they would be like a swarm of locusts on the valley to such an extent that valley was called the Midianite Valley, the Valley of Midian. They had taken over to such an extent that Israel was oppressed, it was impoverished as a result of that. They were intimidated by the Midianites and would come seasonally. They would come as raiders and marauders and they would actually take all the, the harvest that the nation of Israel had hard, worked hard for and impoverish the nation of Israel. As a result of that, the nation of Israel was controlled in their economy and in, in terms of their own livelihood by the Midianites. And, and as the people of God cried out to God, God said, the reason why I'm allowing the enemy it's because you have allowed the enemy to give, have ground in your, in your nation. You have worshipped other gods and you have opened the ground for them. And as a result of that, you have been oppressed. You are the ones who are being oppressed. I'm not oppressing you. You are the ones. But as they cried out to the Lord, the Lord sent a deliverer. And the time of the judges is the time in which children of Israel would disobey God in a cycle, it was a kind of a cyclical thing. They would disobey God and God would send a deliverer. They would repent and then they would have a brief period of uh, prosperity and peace. In chapter 5, you see that it happened with Deborah and Barak and Jael. Two of them were women who uh, destroyed the enemy. So in chapter 7, we have Gideon who has been called by God. He's the youngest of the smallest tribe, of the smallest of the smallest family, of the smallest tribe, of the smallest nation. So he's at the bottom, the very, very bottom of the totem pole. And so God chooses him to be the deliverer in Israel. That is, that is enough to think about for one whole sermon. Yeah? That God can actually choose someone not on the basis of any particular qualities that they have, but based on his grace. It is our bold expectation that God can do that with us as well. Or else we have no business believing God for anything great. If, it is, if, if, the, if that greatness is located in ourselves, then we have no business actually believing that because we are not that good. Chapter 7, let's have a look at this. What God does is that he, he calls Gideon and he says, there are too many of you. He gives Gideon the anointing to blow the trumpet and call, send out messages throughout of all of Israel. And for some inexplicable reason, except for God, they listen to this little runt of a person, the smallest per- person in the smallest family, in the smallest tribe, in the smallest nation. How did that happen? It was anointing. And 32,000 people came to join his army. And then God said, it's too many. It's too many. And you see what we were talking about last Sunday is the way in which God reduces us to our point of strength. He reduces and reduces and reduces us to the point of strength. 32,000, and he said, there's still too many. And then he says, all those who are fearful, go back. Don't worry about it. And then he reduces another 10,000, and that becomes, sorry, another 20, he reduces 22,000 out of that, becomes 10,000, and he says, there's still too many. Still too many. And he reduces the, 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 the 10,000 to 300 by testing them. The test bring, brings us to the, the reduction to the point of strength. Okay? And God does that in our lives. He reduces us 
to a point in which there is nothing spurious, nothing fleshly, nothing that we can depend upon except God. That is the point of strength. And so let's have a look at this. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. See, what God was in, interested in doing is to help them to understand the distinction between the good that we have in ourselves and the good that comes from God. Or else we will not be able to tell the difference. And when we can't tell the difference, we will rely on our own strength, not knowing whether it's our strength or God's allowed strength of us or the strength that God gives to us by virtue of our birth or our gifting, our natural strength that God gives or supernatural strength. We won't be able to tell. And so what God sometimes does is that He just strips us. And He brings us to our point of zero. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 people remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. Isn't it crazy that at three, at, at, at uh, 10,000 people, which is a minuscule, in compa- which is minuscule com- in compared with the Midianites, God said it was still too many. So he brought the people down to the water, And God says to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. It is considerably more uncomfortable and unsatisfying to actually lap with the the hand, you know, to actually pull the water up from 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 the river to your mouth. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the people go, each man to his own home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And so there you have it. There's no condemnation for those who were sent back, but God was looking for something. Right? God was on a search. He was looking for a certain kind of person. In the end, these... 300 people were a, 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 a very small minority and they brought victory and blessing to the rest of Israel. But it was not the many who brought. It was the few. And it was them that brought victory in such a way that the rest were blessed. But there are times in which God is not condemning but looking for a certain kind of person that He can strengthen. A certain kind of person, and that person may not be the kind of person that you would think is the right candidate. And God actually does that a lot of times through that. I'm actually intrigued by the fact that God does not call a great number of people necessarily to do that thing. But He calls a number of great people. I would put it to you that God has called us to not be necessarily a number of a great number of people, but a number of great people. What say you? I don't think you benefit from being in a company of a great company of people. But perhaps you will benefit from being a number of great people. Let's have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 because you see, you can see this in the covenant. I think we can sometimes mistake uh, 
what is greatness? The greatness of God's vision for us. Okay, let's have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. We actually looked at it, I think, last week or, or so. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not... Moses is, is facing the people and God is making a covenant with his people, right, at Sinai. Right? We've been looking at this for a while. And he introduces himself and he calls them and he makes a covenant with them. It is in Sinai that the people of God become a real official people. Because they become a people because they have covenanted with God. Other than that, they're just a race. They become a people because they made a covenant with God. Does that make sense? And that covenant is made in blood. And there's circumcision. And there's a cost. And there's blood in it. There's life. Yeah? So th- when that happens, they are constituted as a people, an identifiable people which have a, which have a name, which have a destiny, that have a call from God, that have an infinite yeah, destiny for them. Right? In verse 7 it says, The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you are more more in number than any other people's. That's not what makes you great. That's not what God did. For you are the fewest of all people. (laughs) But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by His mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh king of, of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord, your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations. And so He's saying, you have been called because God keeps His covenant for a thousand generations. That is how great and hot His love is. That is how awesome His love is. That is how scary His love is. That is how infinitely He has set Himself upon His heart towards you. He has called you not because you are big, but, because, but actually you are small. I'm not, it's not saying He called you because you are small. He's not putting a value on smallness. Don't get me wrong. He's saying, I didn't call you because you are a great number of people. Because you are very, very few. <laughs> okay, but because I love you. So that when you strip everything down, you have nothing to boast of except the fact that someone infinite from outside of this universe, outside of this system, has set His heart towards you and has called you unconditionally. And it has nothing to do with how good you are. Thank God, right? Because if God's love is dependent on, on me, God help God. Right? If the, if, the weakest li- if the strength of the chain is in the weakest link, then, I'm, then we have trouble. The grace of God does not depend upon your weakness being, being uh, taken care of enough for you to not be that weak. All right. if, if all that seems gobbledygook to you, don't worry. Probably not inspired. Know therefore that the Lord your God, verse 9, He is God. He is a, a faithful God who keeps His covenant, His loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep Him. Okay. So he's saying, it's not because you are a big number of people, but, it's, but actually you're a small number of people, and it's because of his love. His love is infinite, and it pours itself to thousands of generations upon a very small people. The, verse 12, Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep undoing them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain, your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock, in the land which He swore to your forefathers to give you. These are very familiar, don't you think? These are familiar promises. But this is what He promises to a small number of people. When He makes a covenant... The covenant is not about being a big number of people, but being a number of big people. Does that make sense? The benefit of becoming a Christian is not that you are with with the majority. In fact, you are probably with the very small minority. Who will be persecuted? But there's a qualitative thing that God is saying He's He's interested in, 
And that has to do with the fact that you will be blessed as people of promise. His promise is not that you will be a big number of people, but that you will have big blessings. Now, we want to go for it. We want to go for this. That's what we are going for. Amen? And if He has to reduce us to that, then so be it. Because that stripping sometimes is necessary for us. So that He can deal with us. You shall be blessed, verse 14, above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness and He will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known, but He will lay them on all who hate you. You shall consume all the peoples whom God, the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eye will not pity them, etc., etc. Okay, so here we go. This is a promise upon a people who are very insignificant. They are very insignificant. They are totally podunk. It's a podunk people. And so, I see that what God is wanting to do is to look for a company of people that He can bless, that He can use as a witness to the rest of the world. And what He calls us to is into a covenant in which He can make us that people, yeah. So a great number of, not a great number of people, but a number of great people. So that each of us will be fruitful in the land. And what we mean by fruitful is that we will not just that we will be part of a good big number of people, but that we will be fruitful. That every single one of us will be fruitful. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that the promise? The promise is not that you will be part of a great, great number of people, but you will be fruitful. That you will be fruitful. So you and I want to go for it. Every single person counts. Every single, sing, single person has a, has a promise upon him or himself or herself. Every single person has that. Wow. Praise God. I believe that God was looking for a certain kind of person in the 300 with, the, with, with uh, Gideon. He was looking for that. And he was actually interested in making that company of people a very special kind of people. A very special kind of people. Because they will need to be a certain kind of people to be a blessing to the rest of the world. I think part of the problem that we have in the image of Christianity here in the West is that Christ has been misrepresented so much that people can't tell where's the Christ in Christianity. And uh, he seems to be missing as a result of that. Praise you, Jesus. I think that the vast majority of the church keeps this dirty little secret that all these promises from God are in the Bible, but we all know that these things don't come to pass. The vast majority don't believe that Jesus heals. The vast majority doesn't believe that His anointing can be upon us so that we can do His works. We've signed the covenant, but we've not really read it. We've actually signed it, and how sometimes some people sign these things, it's just, I'm just going to sign this, I don't even read it. And uh, I have no regard for what this means. But we are going to go for it. We are going for it because we want to be a people of God's covenant. We want to believe that all the promises of God are for us. Like the scripture said, the promises of God are yea and amen. Hallelujah. So I want to put it to you that actually 
many Christians have keep this dirty little secret. And I know growing up, I had that. We read about all these wonderful things in the scriptures. Nobody experiences it. So that when the charismatic movement came, a few people experienced a little bit of it. And the rest of us were thought, that's of the devil. We felt embarrassed by that. We felt embarrassed that these people are moving in things that seem really out, outlandish. <laughs> the vast majority keeps this little secret. Because we made an alliance with idols. So that we can be comfortable in the world. So we've accommodated ourselves to the world. So that we look as much like the world as possible. So that we look cool enough. That we don't look too outlandish. Don't look so, so awkward. So we, we don't feel so awkward. And so we made this accommodation to the world. So that we have acceptance from the world. But we are not. Filled with the power of God. The thing about it is that God will bring us into the world and we will be a tremendous contribution to the world, but you have to go through the cross. Okay? You have to go through something in order for God to distribute you and I to the world. Okay. I, was, uh, I had the privilege of being part of a church which I have described to you several times now. That was a, a, really, a real motley crew of people who seemed like reject, rejects of society. Failures in exams, failures in so many ways, people who had mental breakdowns, people who just, the world would just look, look askance at them and think, who, who are this group of people? An ill-shapen company of people. But there was one thing that these people, because they had been stripped, held on to, and that is that God could actually put His glory in them. Yeah? So we were a certain kind of church. And one of the things that struck me about these people when I first encountered them was that in this group of maybe 20 people, 18 to 20, every single person seemed to be very powerfully used by God. They all had a story about how God had taken them out of prison, out of suicide, out of demon possession. Many of them demon-possessed. Yeah. So this church was very, very experienced at casting out demons because so most of them were formerly demon-possessed. Some of them were former mediums. Some of them were, were former witch doctors and all that. And there's just a sorry bunch of people but who had been saved. And so I would come into this church and you could see it's a small group of people sitting in a circle, but they glowed with the glory of God. I was actually a bit afraid to get come into that because whenever I would come, somebody would have a word for me and the word would not be just one of those nice words that I have images about good things happening in trees, for, trees raining down gold and all that kind of stuff. All that is fine. But they had, they had words for me that like, they would point to me. Sometimes a boy who would be like 14 years old would come to me and he would put his hand on my knee and I thought, oh no, save for, in Cantonese means like, it's a gone case. He's going to prophesy to me. And he would prophesy to me things that I had done before. I would be afraid to go to children's ministry. Because in children's ministry, the children have less restraint than the adults. They don't care how I feel. And I remember going for children's ministry. It's a very small children's ministry, by the way. And, and, and this little, little hand would come upon me. Never has a man six foot tall been so afraid of a, of a, of a, of a finger that's, that's three inches long. I said to the pastor, what is this? Everybody prophesies. Everybody has words of knowledge and, 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 and is used by God. He said, yes, just a little bit. little bit, he will say. Yes, just a little bit. We're just growing a little, a little by little. He says, we pray for people and there's not been a person who we pray for has not been healed. Sometimes it takes us six months to pray and then the healing comes. But we have a little bit of strength. Wow. And I realized that this company of people were a people who had a shape. They have a distinct quality. 
very exciting and also a bit scary. But they were very sacrificial as well. And in the community that they had, that they, had they would be so sacrificial that they would give to each other what they did not fully have in terms of finances or money or grace. It was just amazing. I remember I was living by faith at that time and, and, and the first time it happened, I was, I was totally moved. I, I, I just wept because I had the need for money to pay for my, my, my books in, in school and I had, I had none. And I know that somebody put some money in an envelope in the offering bag and said, this is for Michael. It was exactly the amount that I needed for that. So I said, so these people are hearing from God. That was what God was doing. Now, we were a very small company of people. I've got to tell you, a very small company of people. But we didn't stay small. But he had God had to bring us into that so that we will find our strength in him. Amen? Now, what happened was that, I want, I want to tell you so much, but I, it's just not, we don't have the time. We grew. Because as the more and more we prayed, the more and more the power of God came upon us. And I began to see God's miracles begin to kind of become more profound, more impactful. To cut a long story short, we grew. And I became the pastor of that church. And we grew from 200 to 800 odd within about one and a half to two years. And then very well-known who's who's started coming to, to our church and all that. And we got really excited about the fact that we had to cope with more people coming. It was wonderful because we had a foundation. And that foundation allowed us to have more people coming in, but the people that came in did not lose that spiritual power, that intimacy with God, that knowledge of God. Does that make sense? But we got more sophisticated. We got richer. We had nice things after that. And more people started coming. By the time I left Malaysia, soon after that, we had about 900 odd people. And we couldn't cope. We couldn't cope. Somehow, we got more interested in miracles and healings, supernatural things happening. Because that was what God was, that we had been praying for. And we didn't get a chance to disciple everybody. And slowly, 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 we lost that glow, that glory that we had before. We had more people, but the people were not getting a chance to have that experience that we had, that intense experience of being stripped by God. You know what I mean? And so I want to just start here and talk about the fact that the church has become like that in some ways. So I, there's more to that story and it does end fairly well. And we did recover some of that. But I could see how easily it was, easy it was to lose that kind of intense, warm, loving, sacrificial. It was people would come into our church and say, this is just like Acts chapter 2. We did not consider our, our, our things our own. I believe the church is more than what we see of it. I believe the church, if God calls us to be that kind of church, should be like the 300. That God is making us into that. That we can be a people of covenant who will see the promises of God come to pass. I've seen it for myself. I know it's doable from God's side. Not from our side. But that's what God has for us. I cannot believe that the church is meant to be a whole bunch of people who are empty it's a thousand people times zero with no content, no sub spiritual substance. I don't believe that. So when I left Malaysia, the Lord gave me this vision 
from Daniel chapter 11, that the people who know their God will display strength and do exploits. I hadn't seen enough of that other stuff that was contentless, contentless, substanceless, for me to know that that is what God is calling us to. I believe this is what God has called BCF to. And uh, I believe that in that, He's relentless. I don't think He's going to let us go. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> we were looking. I don't think He's going to let us go. I've been here for 30 years. He's still not letting me go. I had still inside me a mixture of this and that. But I feel that God keeps on hammering me, hammering me and saying that He wants people, He has in mind a people who know their God, display strength and do exploits. That's why I identify with Gideon. Because God, He could see, maybe He couldn't, but I could see that God was wanting not a number, a great number of people, but a number of great people. I believe that you and I can be that. I believe that. And we are prepared to let go of what the world idolizes in order to be a people of reproach, a people who are humbled by God and who are whose time is not yet. Amen. I believe that. I really believe it. And so, what does God do with this group of people? Well, let's, let's keep on going, okay? The first thing He does is that He, in Gideon's weakness, He decides to... God decides to strengthen Gideon. And so in our moment of weakness, our moment of vulnerability, the first thing that God wants to do is to strengthen us by causing us to know that we know that we know that we've heard from God. Okay? So, this is what happens. Chapter 7 still, verse 9. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down... So fear is a real part of the whole thing. Go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterwards your hand will be strengthened. You will hear what they say and it will strengthen your hand. And what God wants to do is to strengthen us. That you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that it was in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And when Gideon came, this little, little runt of a small person comes into this vast company of locust-like armies. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of bread, barley bread, was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it, so it fell. And turned it upside down, so the tent lay flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. And Gideon heard the account of the dream and his interpretation, and he bowed in worship, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. And he divided people into three. So this is what God does. He strengthens us by causing us to come with all our fears into His presence. He accepts our fears. In fact, He anticipates our fears, isn't it? Didn't Gideon didn't ask for that sign. He says, if you're afraid, I anticipate your fear, go down to the camp. You're going to hear a word from the Lord. And He gives us a word, you know. And that word will strengthen us. We've got to come to God with our fears. Because if you don't come with God with your fears, you will not touch the core of what God's wanting to say in you and me. You know what I mean? You come to God with your fears. 
And only God's grace will relieve those fears. But God has done something for you. Only God can relieve my fears. Only a word from God that He speaks into my heart, deep into my heart, not just one, some word that, that's kind of out there. Something that is addressed to me will relieve my fears. Only a word from God can relieve my bitterness, my unforgiveness, my pain, my sorrow, my trauma, my wounding. Only a word of God can do that. I don't mean this word of God that sometimes you can just think of it. It's just, I, it's just a word that you don't really take that seriously. No, it's a word that pierces into the heart. And God says, you bring your fear. If you don't bring your fear, I have nothing to address. But if you bring your fear, I'm there anticipating your fear. Bring it to me. Bring it to me until the fear gets relieved. Until you can feel the courage swooping in. If you haven't heard or felt the courage in, in that swooping in, then you have not met me yet. It's not, it's not yet done. Does that make sense? I know that I have been spoken to and I have been ministered to when the fear goes or courage comes or overcomes the fear. If it hasn't, then you still some more to go. Does that make sense? Now many of us don't give it enough time so that the that you can sit in the presence of God until the fear begins to be relieved. It was grace my, that taught my heart to fear, right? And, and grace my, those fears relieved. How blessed did that grace appear the hour I first believed? There comes a point in which Gideon believed. I don't mean say he confessed that that was true. No, he really, really believed. He knew it was true, but he knew it subjectively. There was something of a knowing that hit him. That knowing was not something that was just attempted, an attempt to, to, to ascend to that, but it is something that hit to him. It, 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 it came against him. That was the grace. And so what, we, what God says, Gideon says, look, you follow me and follow me, bring your fears and wait until those fears are relieved. We can pray and pray and pray and pray. And this is, what, this, this is amazing. But there comes a point in which at, when, when knowledge comes from God and it hits you, you can say with full conviction, the Lord has given Midian into our hands. Bang! It happened there. Before it was all prayer. It was all prayer, confession, faithfulness and all that. There comes a point in which at that, at that certain point, bang! It says, the Lord has delivered Midian into our hands. Whew. That's when knowledge of God, the knowledge from God actually comes. Does that make sense? That's what God meant by, He says, I will strengthen your hand. He's not strengthening you because you're trying to believe or he's trying to hold on to it with your, 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 for your dear life. No, it's that when in that clinging, something comes back to you. The word is apodixis. It's, it's a kind of faith which hits you. It's an objective thing that touches you. It hits you. It comes from the other side. Amen? And he did that. Oh, I praise God for that. When that happened, Gideon was able to tell the, the 300, the Lord has given it into our hands. Have you felt that? There's sometimes you're trying to believe, you're trying to believe, you're trying to pray, you're trying to pray. All that is good. Don't give up. Because there come a point in which something from the other side will come and hit you. It's called belief. God said to Isaiah, you are my witnesses so that you will know and believe. Which is higher, knowing or believing? We can know something, but when we believe it, we believe it to be true. The conviction happens. And then you will understand that I am He, there's no one, no one else. What God wants to do is to put that in us. And I saw that in that little church that I was a part of, in this group of people. Because when they spoke something, something moved in me. It wasn't just some light kind of spiritual platitudes. There was something of weight that was in there. When they said, 
God was going to provide for you, it could be someone who was much younger than me. He would say it would like be like a punch. You would like, whoo, you will hit me. That spirit that they had was imparted to me. It sort of jumped onto me. I was like, oh, I somehow believe. Trust comes when we surrender ourselves to God. And in that surrendering to God, we say, Lord, anything you say. Amen? I found it, I found it to be true. I found it to be true. And I could take that with me wherever I went. Every place where I was involved in church planting, every conference, every ministry opportunity, it was... It would, it would happen. Okay, let's, let's, let's move on, okay? So what was the strategy? Well, here it is. Verse, verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just posted the watch... And they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. And when they blew three hundred trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another even throughout the whole army, and the army fled as far as Bethshitta towards Zererah, as far as the edge of Abel Meholah by Tabat. And the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all, the, and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. We'll stop here for a little bit. There were two things that, that Gideon had for the, for, the, for the army, these 300 people. They were armed with just these two things. One is a trumpet, and the second was a jar, into which the lighted torch was. Okay? And he says, he divided them into three, and they, the three surrounded the camp. I cannot imagine how that could have happened, because the camp was so vast. I don't even think the three groups could even see each other. But they were there, they kept, went under cover of night, they had the trumpet, and they had the, uh, the, the jar. I'd like to talk about the jar and the torch first. The torch was inside the jar. And what would happen is that when Gideon gave the word, they would smash the jar and the torch would, would, would be seen. Amen? The jar was not the important thing. The torch was. The torch is the light. And that is a good picture of how God actually wants to cause us to be used by Him. He puts the jar over the torch, and when the jar is smashed, the light of God radiates and happens suddenly against the enemy. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Do we have it up, up there? Second Corinthians chapter 4. I love this. This is a good picture of Second Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4 says... But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body of the, di the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death, for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Basically, what, what Paul is saying is, is, is this. It is only when the jar, the outer person, the earthen jar, which is our own flesh, our own outer person, what Watchman he calls the outer man, what Paul calls the outer man, is destroyed, that the light comes out. Amen? And what he's saying is this. We are carrying this light of God in an earthen vessel. Now you may like the earthen vessel. You may make the earthen vessel very, very pretty and very beautiful. In fact, very profound. But it's not the earthen vessel that has any capability of shining the light in the darkness. The light 
The only thing that can shine in the darkness is not the jar, jar but the torch that's inside it. And what, what, what God is saying through Gideon is this. It is only when the outer man is, 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 is smashed, only when the flesh is smashed, that the light of God will come. There is something that happens with brokenness where, that causes the light of God to actually manifest and take over and overtake and overshadow the good, the artistic, the creative, the, earth, the, the, the gifted, the earthly special things that we have out there. And sometimes we are loath to actually let it get smashed. But it gets smashed by two things. One is when we carry the cross of Jesus. And when you say, Lord, not I, but you be that, your, your, your will be done. And secondly, circumstances. And sometimes circumstances strip us, humiliate us, or humble us, bring us to naught, so much so that when that is happening, we feel weak, we feel impoverished, we feel unable, we feel not fit. But it is especially at this point that... What God is saying is this, there is a light there. That is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. If you're a Christian, when, the, when your outer person, when your things are taken away from you, when you go through such dealings, when, they are, when, it, when it's smashed, the light will come out. The anointing will come out. When you've been humiliated, when you've been stripped, when you've been disappointed, when God has imposed His will upon you and you don't get what, the way you want it, and the outer pe- person begins to surrender to the will of God, it breaks. And it does not look very pretty. And even when it doesn't look very pretty, when your reputation is at stake and you feel that you ha- you're not even fit to, to be before in the company of other people, it is at this point where God says, the light is there. The light was there. It could not come out unless the outer person was destroyed. You have to have that. You have to have that. Now what a lot of people do is this. We try to prevent that from happening. We do everything that we can so that the jar will not be broken. We make sure we avoid the right people, avoid the wrong people, and stay with the right people who will always praise our jar, who will always affirm our jar, who will always mollycoddle our jar. But what God is saying is it's only when the jar breaks that you will see a greater glory. The glory of the jar is not bad. The glory of the jar is not bad. But the glory of God is what we want. God has made us for that glory, the torch, the glory of God. Amen? And that is really, really what we can, we can sometimes miss out on because of the fact that when God actually brings us to humiliation, that is the point where we want to withdraw. But the point of attack for the, for the army of Gideon was the point of brokenness. That was the weapon. The weapon was not to protect the jar. The weapon was the jar breaking. Only when the outer person of the, of the, of the flesh is destroyed, when our will becomes to be submitted to God, that God actually begins to shine His light through us. And in the worst of circumstances, that's where the light of God will shine. I remember we were praying for this building and the sellers of the building had basically resisted us actually exercising our first right of refusal to buy this building. We actually also didn't have enough money, by the way. So we were wanting to buy this building and not having enough money. What a terrible situation. But God spoke to us to, to go for it. And so we, were, we, we, we had, after two, two, two and a half years, come to a point where there was such an impasse. We met with the owners of the building. And the owners of the building said, we're not going to sell it to you. We've decided not to sell it to you. And all that prayer, all that saving up, all that giving, all that, all that effort that we had, had come to a complete standpoint, standstill. And I had been praying, and, and some of us had been praying. Actually, the whole church had been praying. And for it to come to a place where the result of all that prayer was a no-sell, 
was devastating. Up to that point, we could feel how right we were, how righteous we were and how unrighteous they were. We could feel that. We felt, it, the, we felt the righteous indignation of them reneging on their, on, the, on their covenant. And there was a certain strength in that. But there was a way in which after we prayed, I could see we were deflated when they said, we're not going to sell. We choose not to sell. And it was in this point where I found there was no outer reason, no rational reason for us to feel hopeful anymore. But I had learned to hear from God and to pray in the Spirit so that there was something in my spirit that did not go down. Everything else did. I was like distraught. I was just completely sad, hopeless, feeling, okay, what can we do with the church? We have no more. What will people, how will people's faith in God be? I could feel all this, all a thousand thoughts coming to my mind, completely distraught, except for the fact that for no real rational reason, something inside me was bubbling up. So I remember asking them, is there anything that can be done to change your mind? Out of the blue, they said, what would you want? And because I had learned to listen to the voice of the Spirit, right? Over against the voice of my jar, shall we say. And we had plenty of good advice on the jar side, if you know what I mean. I had it in me to say, could you sell it to us for one million dollars less? It was like totally audacious and but not because I had any boldness myself I was completely, completely, I was wasted but there was something inside little spring and I've learned to listen to that little spring now more than, than to trust the, the words that are written on the, on the jar and at that time that jar had only one right word written shattered shattered and I said could you sell it to us for one million dollars less to my utter surprise, they said, give us some time, we'll go and pray about it, we'll discuss it. It's like plot twist, right? You're going this way, against the run of play, it goes, eh. There's no real reason. I thought, what? This is, talk about bizarre, right? It's bizarre. It's like in a dream. It's like, ah. And they did. They met for an hour. And we were lost. We were like, what's going on? What's going on? He came back and says, we will sell it to you for one million dollars less. I knew somehow the Lord had given it into our hands when I asked that question. There is something about prayer that's important as a build-up. But it is to bring us to a point where we know at that moment, and sometimes that moment is one in which you're completely weak, completely stressed out and, and stripped the Lord has given it into your hands. The miracles happen at that moment. The moment when you feel weakest, you've been stripped, and you've been praying, and everything has intensified. And there is a moment in which Gideon experienced the word of the Lord. Boom! He has given it into our hands. If we respond to that moment, things will happen. If we respond to God in that moment, a miracle will take place. You can pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. You can talk and talk and talk and talk and function in the flesh completely. But if you don't say it, if you don't operate at that moment, it will pass. And everything inside me, other than that little spring, was saying, this is a waste of time. Let's go home. At least we'll know, they will know our outrage. But the Lord said, no, there's something else. Amen? In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, oops, I have 
very little time, but I will just say it. In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ and ours are abundant, so shall the comfort be abundant through Christ. What he's saying is this, what gives us authority is the comfort we receive from God. Suffering does not give us authority. Brokenness does not give us authority. Being marginalized does not give us authority. Being oppressed does not give us authority. Authority comes only when we are comforted. Our own strength doesn't give us authority. Our own boldness does not give us authority. Victimhood does not become, give us authority. The comfort of God gives us authority. If you don't have the comfort of God, when you are being stripped and you are being oppressed, when you are being imprisoned, when you are being marginalized, when you are being treated badly and treated unfairly, nothing will come out. But because God is inside you, the comfort of God is such that when you are stripped and you are marginalized and you are oppressed and you are victimized, God will come upon you and that comfort is a supernatural thing that comes to you at that very moment. That's why I don't agree with people who say, who are going to teach your children that only those who have been marginalized and who have been oppressed or have been victimized have authority. That is not authority. That is not spiritual authority. That is something. But the authority of God comes when God has comforted you. It's a humble authority. It's, a humble, it's an authority that makes you more humble than anything else. Not more in your face. It is not something that makes you authoritative in an authoritarian way. It makes you authoritative because of the fact that the comfort of God flowed upon you to such an extent that with that, in love, you can meet with the, your oppressor with the love of God. Amen? That is why brokenness is not a value in and of itself. The church has made brokenness a value in and of itself. The church has become nominal. What I mean is this. We have taken words and we have made them into something so, so that we have a value for the person who is oppressed, victimized, abused, destroyed. No. The authority comes upon the Lord. You have no authority. I have none. And when the school tells your children that you, that that more authority is given to those who have been oppressed, you've got to tell your children, no, authority comes from God. Because when He humbles us, He will humble us and He will give us an authority that comes not through being assertive, but because of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? The days ahead will need to be a days in which you and I are prepared for these things. So much so that our weapons are not carnal, but strong to the pulling down of strongholds. They are spirit-filled. They start from the fact that we have no authority in and of ourselves, no matter how broken we are. Now, the church has come to a place where suffering has been taken for granted. The church has, has, has taken, taken a turn away from the prosperity teaching. And they're saying, prosperity teaching is too triumphalistic. It's, too, it's, it's not true. I agree. But it's the turn that the church has taken is that we say suffering is really important. I would say suffering is important, but not in and of itself. The comfort of God is what matters. Because the God will bring us to such suffering and the bro- that's why the brokenness, that's why the jar breaks. You cannot have, a, have an unbroken jar. If you have an unbroken jar, people will only, will only admire your jar which is of limited glory. Yeah? But God wants to do something more. He wants to actually release His power so that we don't glorify victimhood, we don't glorify our brokenness, but we glorify Him. That's why Paul says, therefore, you know, and I'm weak, I'm strong, therefore in my, in my infirmities, I would rather glory that the power of Christ will rest upon me. Now, how we respond to that point of brokenness is very important. Because that brokenness, some people what say is, I'm broken. 
That's my glory. There was a, Cindy tells me of a, of a, okay, I'm going to finish, okay. Give me five, four more sentences. There was a, there's a, there's a, a woman in her, her, her college who wore a, a wrist brace. Is it a wrist brace or some, some kind of brace or a, or a, or, that's right. And she said, the reason why I did that is because I get a lot of attention. Yeah, I get more attention when I do that. And I say, you don't need to do that. God has given us His glory. So we can embrace the suffering. We can embrace what's happening. That doesn't mean that you suffering from the hands of other people is right. It doesn't mean that they're doing right. But for you and I in the future, God is wanting to do something. Let us pray. All right, okay. Okay, I get it. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you that in our weakness you are made strong. And we thank you that you have made us a people that you are calling for, that your heart searched and searched for us. And we thank you, Lord, that in the humility or even the humiliation that we all feel, you are alive and doing great things. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless.